0: I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Dr. Brett Fimiani. He's here to discuss his new book, Psychosis and Extreme States An Ethic for Treatment, part of the Palgrave Lacan series, edited by Drs. Callum Neal and Derek Hook. Brett Fimiani is faculty, board member, and psychoanalyst of the San Francisco Bay Area Lacanian School of Psychoanalysis and a clinical psychologist. He works with people experiencing psychosis and extreme states in his private practice in Oakland, California and at the Haight-Ashbury Integrated Care Center in San Francisco. His research interests include adapting the Lacanian analytic frame for the treatment of psychosis and extreme states. For more about the San Francisco Bay Area Lacan School, visit lacanschool.com. Founded in 1990, The Lacanian School of Psychoanalysis offers a transmission of psychoanalysis through a savoir of the unconscious, built gradually in personal analysis and control analyses. These direct experiences of the unconscious, alongside an immersion in theory through seminars, events, reading groups, and cartels, inform Ethical Practices of Analysis and Scholarship. Rendering Unconscious is Also a Book. Rendering Unconscious: Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics and Poetry, available from Chapar Books. Please visit our publisher's website, chapar.net. That's T R A P A R T.net. For more information, you can support the podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23carl. Your support is greatly appreciated. Thank you so much to everyone in our Patreon community. For links and more information, you can visit Rendering Unconscious main website, renderingunconscious.org and my website, drvanessasinclair.net. For those of you in the Stockholm area, I will be in Stockholm on Monday, May 30th. I will be the respondent and discussant to Dr. Danny Nobis' presentation, Group Pathology and the Analysis of the Ego on the Dissolution of Psychoanalytic Organizations and the question of psychoanalytic training. This event takes place at 1900, 7 p.m., at ABF Stockholm. A little bit about the event. Some 110 years after the foundation of the International Psychoanalytical Association, It is fair to say that the institutional history of psychoanalysis has been persistently troubled by conflict and dissent. Whereas some of these internal divisions revolved around intellectual disagreements, and other schisms were the result of divergences in clinical technique, The history of psychoanalytic institutional life has been primarily conditioned by vehement disputes pertaining to the implementation of psychoanalytic training and, more broadly, about the structure of psychoanalytic organizations and the policies governing its training institutes. In this lecture, we will reflect upon the key questions of training that any psychoanalytic institution needs to address and investigate the extent to which an alternative division of power based upon Bion's concept of the leaderless group and Lacan's initial proposals for his École Freudienne de Paris may address some of the seemingly intractable issues of training that many psychoanalytic organizations continue to grapple with. See you there. Well, Beth, thank you for being here. And I'm really looking forward to hearing about your book. And I was wondering what got you interested in this topic in the first place? And what kind of drove you to write this book?
1: Um, Well, Yeah, and thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here to talk with you and and your listeners. Um, Yeah, that's a great question, uh, because I think it's, let me see. (laughs) Um, Well, I'll go back a little bit. I mean, I think my my interest in, um, I mean, the the book is Lacanian and Orientation, yes, uh, although it has other perspectives included. Um, But I think my interest in, say, psychosis and extreme states far predates my involvement with, with psychoanalysis and with, in any formal way. Um, uh, and I think I was drawn, say, to, to Lacan and, and even before Lacan, probably R.D. Lang and people who thought differently about, uh, you could say, you could call it psychosis or extreme experiences. Um, and I think that just comes from the way I viewed things. Uh, I can't quite explain it. You know, it's just sort of you have a you're in the world with a certain perspective. And I was interested in those things, um, partly because my parents were in the field in a very different way than I was. But I think I was brought up in a kind of came up in an environment where, you know, my parents were doing a kind of work with with people with very severe issues. um, And so I probably developed some sort of empathic relation to that or or, and, and curiosity. I guess I could have been repelled by it. Uh, but I, it was the opposite. I think I just became more and more curious um, and, and latched on to thinkers, um, whether it was philosophical or, or clinical or both, that helped me think about it, you know, and seemed to approach um, experiences that were otherwise stigmatized or marginalized or, or silenced or punished, but in a different way, you know, in a way that made sense to me um, and that opened, uh, the under my understanding, um, you know, I, I, like many people, um, who go on to study psychoanalysis. I studied psychology and a little bit in high school, but then in college and, and graduate school. Um, and I was always found, I was always sort of at a loss, uh, for, for adequate theory and perspectives, sort of in the mainstream curriculum, you can say, and then later in the mainstream mental health field. Um, and, and, you know, as every as most people know, L- Lacan is at least in North America and less, much less so today, uh, but very much in the margins, um, uh, and not, not taught really. Um, so anyway, I, I was always sort of, uh, going along those, those lines. Um, my real interest in, uh, uh, clinical treatment of psychosis came when I started studying with Shifriq in Quebec City, uh, the Freudian School of Quebec, and, and uh, with the, the founding analyst there, Willie Apollon, and others who founded a, a very successful clinic there, uh, the 388, which has been going on for a few decades now, but really a, a, a true reinvention of psychoanalysis beginning with the experience of psychosis. So, that's the way I, I view it. I think others might agree um, versus neurosis, for example. So, uh, that took me a long way uh, in terms of learning and, and uh, being hopeful, because I think this is much about hope, you know, that there are, uh, you know, hope for people who um, have extreme experiences, need places and spaces and people to listen in a particular way or ways, you know, um, that give them a chance to move maybe beyond the pure suffering of it. Um, so anyway, I studied with them for a a long time and, um, uh, eventually, uh, after years of, of clinical work and getting to a point where I felt like, uh, I had something I wanted to work on a book length, um, got involved with, with writing this, this book, uh, but probably not until I, I had in some ways reached what I felt were some of the limits of, of even the, the approaches I learned, which were excellent. Uh, and that came from learning from my patients, you know, and being told in so many ways, maybe not directly, but this is not working or, you know, my the way in which I was conceiving or conceptualizing the transference or handling it was somehow running aground with them. And so I think that's where sort of the latter parts of the book figure in terms of uh, folding in, say, uh, perspectives within the peer movement, like the Hearing Voices Network, or or the work of uh, Francoise Dabouin and her late husband, um, Max Gaudier, um, which I I take is to be very valuable sort of critiques of the kind of Lacanian Orthodox approach to to transference, uh, even in psychosis. Um, uh, So those are some sort of general contours.
0: Great, we have a lot of different ways we can go from that. Maybe for a beginning, could you tell people a little bit about what 388 is for people who may not know or be familiar?
1: Sure, I'll do my best. Um, so the 388 is is sort of the, the nickname for the for the clinic because it's the address, the street address, but also the true address for psychosis, I would say, sort of in the analytic sense, a place where people experiencing psychosis can find a, a, a true address. Uh, a listener. Anyway, so uh, it's called the uh, uh, Treatment Center for Young Adult Psychotics, and it's uh, under the umbrella of, of Gifrique, which is a decades-long standing um, research and clinical organization founded by Willie Apollone, um, analyst and philosopher in the late, late, you know, the late 70s, I guess. Uh, but the 388 is a, a, we would call an outpatient uh, clinic. It's really a big Victorian house, um, but that has had great success um, with a sort of Lacanian analytic centered approach, but it's also very multidisciplinary with of course psychiatry and at, when needed. And um, there's always sort of an artist in residence there. There's a social worker. There's, I think what they call an ethnoanalyst, someone who maybe tracks sort of the multi-generational um, transmission. Uh, of maybe psychotic experience and knowledge or underpinnings. Um, But yes, it's largely, uh, it's, it's centered, the the analytic uh, work is is the hub. uh, And then there are are things that sort of uh, flare out from that in terms of the treatment model, um, long-term treatment, Um, uh, key for that model, I think, is that they have uh, the option for people when they are going through an intense crisis, uh, of some sort, they have the option of, of having a bed there for a brief period to ride that out with what they call a, um, I'm, I'm losing the term they use for the person, but a person who will accompany them 24 hours a day, probably more than one person, but um, so that there is an address, so that there is a, a way to, for that person who's going through something to, if they want to speak uh, and register the experience with another so that it's not lost you know, which is quite contrary to what happens often say in a hospital situation or other situations if someone's isolated, they go through something we call a crisis and it's unspoken entirely. It, it goes unwritten and unregistered. Um, so I think that's very key um, to the process. Uh, it reminds me of in some ways what we have here, although quite different because it's not embedded in a treatment model, but we have what are called peer respites, you know, which, which are peer run and we're people who are in a crisis can have an alternative to hospitalization. but um, that's kind of a broad sketch of you know the 388 And I think just it's been an inspiration to people all over, um, especially those of us who went there to learn about psychosis and are trying in our own ways to create something like that. You know uh, For me, I'm, tr- I'm trying to do it in a more virtual way or if that's the right word, you know not necessarily in a building, but through working with others, Uh, analysts who work this way but also um, psychiatrists who are sympathetic at least or maybe work this way um, so that we can um, create a place for um, where uh, analysis is spoken and where psychos psychotic experience can be spoken and worked with.
0: Absolutely I mean for me my my big turn you know of course in graduate school I I did a rotation in uh, serious mental illness, as they would call it. And the person who ran, the supervisor who ran that rotation, it was very... I wouldn't even say CBT it was very behavioral and I was in the psychodynamic concentration and she, you know I just told her like yeah, you know I don't think the way that you're trying to get me to think and she said okay well you don't you know I respect that you have a different theoretical orientation and you don't have to do exactly what I say and so I so I didn't like she I guess it was CBT she wanted me to like give my patients like these little papers with like drawings of people in a line and everybody had a thought bubble over their head. And it was like trying to show like, if you think they're all in the same situation they're all waiting in a line but depending on how they think about it you know they're having a different experience or whatever and meanwhile my patients are like you know suffering greatly I was I was working at a homeless shelter you know I'm not going to give somebody these little papers with these like drawings on them these cartoons you know it was like yeah. so it was so infantilizing um and yeah so I just basically never did what my supervisor told me to do and eventually she was like you have to do it sometimes and I was just like I'm just going to treat people like this I just want to listen to them
1: <laughs> yeah well that reminds me of I mean I probably a lot of us have that experience in in training I, I was always trying to find the one place in town where it wasn't that way um, but yeah it seemed like you were either, either lucky enough to have as a student to have a supervisor who was kind of cr- helped create that space where you could work and think that way or you had to uh, kind of ignore what you're being told and and go about your business. But uh, it's not unlike that working sometimes in some of the clinics we have too, where um, you sort of carve out your own place.
0: Yeah, exactly. And then at the hospital, I was kind of having a similar experience where my supervisor, when I worked at at a public hospital also wanted me to kind of do these kinds of things. And it's like, I'm just not talking to people like that. Like these are adults and they can make their own decisions. And I had one patient who didn't want to take his medication and, you know, then they're saying he's non-compliant and, you Mm know, he's perfectly in his rights. I felt to not want to take medication if he didn't want, you know, want to do that. He was like living, you know, on his own and doing okay. And you know, who am I to tell him to do what he should or should not do in that way. So um, yeah, and actually, it was actually through, like, kind of thinking through that that particular person, uh, person's life um, with, a, with Manya Steinkohler, actually, Lacanian yeah. analyst, and then her having such a different perspective where she was actually listening to what I was saying about the case instead of just being, like, yeah, frustrated with me, like my supervisor at the hospital that I started kind of getting more turned on to Lacan, and I was like, oh, these people are thinking differently about this, because when you're, when you're not exposed to psychoanalysis, you know, in in grad school or in hospital settings as a psychologist, um, and then you encounter someone that's like thinking about Lacan, it's like such a breath of fresh air, it's like a whole world opened up. It's like, oh, there's a whole like universe of people who work differently. And and then this kind of system that we're trained in, because I didn't even know, when you're a grad student, you don't even know that you're allowed to not use the DSM, for example, you know? (laughs) You know. Oh, is that allowed? I don't have to diagnose people from this book. But yeah. they don't they don't tell you that in grad school, you
1: know. No, it didn't occur to them. <laughs> but yeah, it's a like you say, it's a whole different world paradigm. And it op- it opens up a whole different way of thinking and working, le- luckily.
0: And would you talk a little bit about, like, I, like you do in your book, about the kind of different structure of psychosis and like, Lacan's ideas about that from a Lacanian perspective?
1: Yeah, I'll try. Um, so I think, um, yeah, I mean, the one main sort of, or good way of thinking, easy way of thinking about it or accessible way, at least, is um, the way Lacan thinks of structure uh, versus uh, what I in the book I call phenomenology or what we might call symptoms. Um, and and of course Lacan typically spoke of three different structures, uh, neurosis, psychosis, and perversion, Um, and there's a lot there, Uh, but uh, so uh, let's just take psychosis, Uh, and there's a question here too of what we mean by structure, at least what I mean by it, Uh, and I think it's, it's hard to even for me to keep this in mind sometimes, because we're so trained to think of the individual and that the problem is inside the individual. Uh, but I think structure, and you know, Lacan is known to you know theorize things in terms of language, generally speaking, symbolic structures. So I, when I think of structure, I don't think of just the person. I think of this person's in subjective relation individual relation to language itself. And by language, in this case, I mean uh, others and 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 the other in a way. So there's already this notion of, a, of an opening up between the subject and the other. Uh, and in psychosis, it's a particular kind of other. Uh, and I think the easiest way to understand that is in terms of delusion, so-called delusional constructions. Um, and uh, which is itself another structure or is structured, you know, as opposed to say in psychiatry where, or, or mainstream psychology or, or other approaches where there's really no concept of this. There's no concept of, of say delusion as having a logic of having, of listening to it long enough to discover how it's structured, mm-hmm. uh, et cetera. So, and that's only the beginning point. That's not the end point, but that is the beginning. Um, but anyway, back to this distinction between structure and phenomenology, or structure and symptoms, uh, is that um, you know psychotic symptoms. What are they? So voices, uh, distressing beliefs, otherwise known as delusions, uh, unusual sensory experiences. So is that psychosis itself from a Lacanian perspective? No. Uh, those are the, that's the phenomenology. That's the those are the symptoms, and those can occur from a drug-induced psychosis. Which you know, when you take the drugs away, largely uh, tends to clear. So that person is not psychotic per se. Uh, from a Lacanian perspective, um, uh, they may have a neurotic structure or some other configuration, but are just having that experience because of of uh, of drugs. And um, I think in psychosis proper. Uh, or what, what I guess I'd call extraordinary psychosis versus or, what people call, now call ordinary psychosis is more the kind of delusional thinking like you find in the Schraber case, something very universal and including the universe or the world at large, not really in the interpersonal level of, of kind of garden variety paranoia, for example, um, so much, but usually having a much broader global scope uh, where the, the person has a, a very specific role or roles in that in that scheme. Um, so anyway, so uh, you know what what is the um, other like in these delusions? often uncontrolled, uh, capricious, no limit. they can do anything uh, to the person. Um, I know someone who you know he has uh, He's being hunted down by various um, agents in the world that are related to the government. Uh, uh, He has uh, objects implanted in his body. Um, They can see through his eyes. Uh, So his eyes are cameras. Uh, They can come into his dreams and either write the dream or uh, uh, at least record it. Um, his eyes and these other objects can also be exploded like little bombs so the other can do anything to and with you in that position Uh, and your body also apparently has no boundaries so you know this is the body of of the psychotic in a way uh, which you know I have a chapter on the body of the psychotic which doesn't get into that part exactly but there is this Question of the body and psychoanalysis in general, which is not the organism, it's the the psychic body, the psychical body, um, the body as it's carved up by the other. So in psychosis, you start to get a sense of a structure or what what we could call a subjective position, a position in the world in relation to an other, which is a psychical other, uh, that can do any of these things. And... um, Maybe we can get into this down the road. I mean, this is much more complicated in a way because there is a question of when does the delusion come in? You know, I think in in early onset or, you know, the first so called pre psychotic or or psychotic experiences are, in a way, I I think, without delusion yet. There are experiences of invasion and rupture. Uh, Maybe a voice breaks in or sounds break in, um, fragments. Start to, to come through. But the delusion, I think, is a solution to that. So it's not primary in a way. The delusion, as Lucy Cantan, one of the analysts with Shafreek, would say, is a theory of an experience. It's a it's an explanatory device.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's like I a way to is. tie it it's all our,
1: together. I, I say it is, but I mean I should say that's our hypothesis, right? That's mm-hmm. how. that's one way that I listen. So when we're listening, it's not with nothing in mind, right? I also have a a sort of metapsychology of sorts in mind, which comes from, I I would argue, the experience of psychosis to begin with. Um, I think if you listen to someone who's experiencing that, they wanna talk, they wanna tell you what they know, right? Um, And so I think that's the first role of the clinician in that experience is to be a good listener a good secretary and learn what they have to teach about how their experience is structured. So anyway, you don't see any of this in the neuros- the structure of neurosis typically. I think you can have some psychotic experiences, but uh, I find the structural model uh, still very helpful clinically. Uh, it has its limits and, uh, you know, uh, but but it, 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 it's helpful in, in helping us, I think, listen in a way uh, that, that positions the person speaking um, as the one, <laughs> in a way, as the one who knows, right? So the transference is kind of reversed actually in, in, in psychosis, I think, whereas in neurosis, it's the subject suppose, you know, the the neurotic supposes the analyst to know. Well, I think we, as an analyst, you have to suppose the psychotic to know, because that's how they come in with a certain level of certainty about what's going on. And that's in the form of the delusion. So hopefully that wasn't too all over the place, but I was trying to speak to this question of structure, both uh, psychical structure, but also the structure of delusion.
0: No, that was very clear. And there's, I remember reading Uh, I don't know a while back, Darian Leader's What is Madness? and he talks about you know, the delusion has a place and is there for a reason, (laughs) you don't want to just like try to take it away from someone, you know, like when like they also taught us in school at some point, like you know, you have to challenge people's ideas with like reality testing and this kind of thing, and it's like, you know why would you want to break somebody's structure that they built? They have it for a reason. It's helping them function, you know, so you can listen to them and try to understand it and understand where it came from. Um, But you don't want to just like poke holes on it, you know?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And I, although I, you know, I think um, exactly as you're saying this, I either, either you're advised, I say you, I mean, either, uh you know, sort of the mainstream training is such that, you're advised not to listen at all
0: mm-hmm.
1: to not encourage any elaboration at all because it will harm the person this is sort of the the premise which is generally f- false that doesn't actually happen although someone can become upset if they start talking about things so you have to be prepared for that um, yeah or this idea of reality testing or challenging which doesn't typically Do anything except cause someone to reinforce what they already believe. Uh, Although I will say in in the analytic model that I'm sort of writing about and and even in uh, these other peer models, there is a a place for the challenge in a way. Uh, However, it can't come from you or me, it has to come from within. Um, I mean, not unlike the way a challenge comes from within, for someone who has a neurotic structure. Mm-hmm. Things come from the unconscious to question longstanding uh, beliefs and narratives of the ego, for example. So, uh, but that's a very, you know, that's kind of the track we try to follow and why we begin by trying to be good secretaries, I think or good listeners and trying to hear what that world is like uh, so that maybe it, it can be challenged Not everyone works this way. I think there's, from what I'm gathering, even in the Lacanian field, there's different perspectives on whether you should sort of shore up the delusion in in some way. Um, I don't see that as my role. I mean, the the patient will shore it up if they want to, if they have Mm -hmm. to, they need to, as a survival mechanism. Um, But yeah, just a a side comment on on challenging.
0: Yeah, and if there is challenging, it it doesn't happen in the first session. Mm
1: (laughs) <laughs> oh, it, could be, it could be a very long time, if ever.
0: Mm-hmm. And that also brought to mind, you know, when you're training as an analyst, uh, they, at least in the non-Lacanian, I, I was first at like a very, uh, so I, what I thought was a Freudian school, but it was very much like an ego, ego psychology-based school um, institute. But, uh, you know, this whole idea of like, who's analyzable, you know, and having to go through this whole intake process to determine if someone is analyzable and even admitted in for analytic treatment. I always had a huge issue with that as well.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I think that that goes for Lacanian schools too, in my experience, right? There's the still very much a question of who's analyzable, is psychosis appropriate? Uh, candidate, someone with psychosis, an appropriate candidate for analysis? Probably usually not because the person may not have that interest or experience. I think we're trying to, to, to create new ways of, of working with people. Mm -hmm. Um, and there are big differences, you know, in terms of the, the notion of the transference and how we think about it versus neurosis. Um, um, uh, yeah, but to me, I, I think, I mean, I think the question of the unconscious is different in psychosis too. Like what is, what do we mean by the unconscious when we're talking about a psychotic subject or a subject in psychosis? Um, for me though, I, what I hold on to right now is just the notion of the subject, the free subject. And so, and re- my recent clinical work, and I'm trying to work on this more is, you know, how do we hear the, the subject? Because in delusion, you don't hear the subject. You hear the object. You hear the per- the subject as object, <laughs> as the object of abuse, the object of uh, invasion, uh, exploitation, manipulation, lies. Uh, that's not a subject of desire, right? There's no lack there. There's no free subject speaking. So it's interesting to try to ponder like, well, how do we, What is? They, what do they sound like? Um, well, I'm, fi- I'm finding just in, kind of cases that, that usually comes in the form of a question about the delusion. Is this real? What if this was all fake? So there's a kind of rupture there, right? There's a, a doubt, which was always on my side. I try to uphold in some sense without pushing it or knowing it really, that there is a lack here. <laughs> there has to be, that's my conviction anyway. Um, so it, it's um, this question of, um, who's appropriate for what uh, can be really, uh, I don't know that it's always said uh, in good faith. So my question is like, so what are you doing about it? You know, (laughs) Uh, anyway, that's kind of my, that's my whole work in a way is trying to, uh, for for a variety of reasons, um, not exclude people, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I remember working with someone who was not psychotic at all presenting the case and being, sort of told by the senior analyst who were the respondents kind of like well this person kind of basically saying this person was touched this person had physical sexual trauma and sort of shutting it down right there so therefore uh, the the there's no fa- you know the fantasy was became was acted out anyway it's a, it's a tangent but and I, I going way back to my early training always being told, don't listen to this person or they're Mm -hmm. not appropriate. You know, I had qualifying exams, you know, where I had to present a case as a doctoral student and told literally by one of the examiners, I would tell this person to shut up. Amazing. (laughs) So, I mean, that's, it's hard to fathom, right? Okay, so apparently he was bothered by this. Um, But anyway, not to get on a soapbox too much, but, I love a soapbox. <laughs> it's just, it, it, it's sort of, it drives me in a way this kind of, I don't know that I have a choice really, but it's kind of um, that brand of psychoanalysis I find kind of boring. The one that only works with neurosis. Mm-hmm.
0: No, and I love what you're doing here because, you know, to me, this is what is great about analytic work. And like you said, um, you know, you, you trained and you worked in these different places and then you found, you know, where there are limits and then you kind of invent and find your own way and your own voice to kind of speak to experiences that you haven't seen spoken to and to work in ways that you haven't seen or where you've seen there been limits and like adding to the theory and the canon in that way. And that's what I, I think exactly what, you know, analysts should be doing it. Like you said, some orthodox Lacanians uh, don't really do that. They just like focus on what Lacan said. But, you know, that's what all of the big analysts did, like Freud and Jung and Lacan is like everybody, you know, saw things in, in their own way with their own patients and their own work and then spoke to that. And that's what really ends up resonating and having like uh, long lasting kind of value in the field.
1: Yeah, Lacan wasn't Lacanian. Exactly. <laughs> he, said it is, he, he said it himself. Right? Everyone wants to be like that. Which, I mean, he gave us a lot to go go with, but still, exactly. He was in psychosis. Right? He had a lot to say, but didn't feel that it, psychoanalysis at the end of the day was uh, all that useful to it.
0: Yeah, well, I think so. And like you said, even if you maybe you have to work in a bit of a different way, but you know, we should be able to find ways. That everybody can kind of benefit from, you know. I feel like analysts, as analysts, we shouldn't just have one specific theory and then kind of only work with people that that works for or, you know, fit people to our theories, but rather we should be kind of always flexible. I just watched the film Adieu Lacan a couple of mm-hmm. nights ago because I interviewed the director and the actor oh. who played Lacan yesterday. And, uh, yeah, one of the lines in that film, he says, you know, the analyst uh, is like an actor and always kind of taking on different
1: roles. And I really love that.
0: <laughs> That's
1: an interesting film to watch. I, I, I did watch it too recently.
0: Yeah, it was fun. It was nice to see a film that, uh, uh, as I told them so many times, analysts are portrayed in you know, media and film and television, it's always like so cringe because we're always like breaking boundaries or doing something like, mm-hmm. you know, that patients imagine we'd be doing or, you know, being just being usually pretty terrible. <laughs> um but it was nice to actually see like the kinds of interventions It's like oh these are interventions that would actually happen like her you know kind of acting out and losing her amulet and trying to find something or like having the hallucination about the rats and then realizing the rat sound was the name of the father and you know it's like it was nice to see these kinds of Interpretations and in scenes that ac- could actually happen, you know, <laughs> whereas usually it's like, I guess the last movie I saw where was an analyst was like The Matrix, and the psychoanalyst was like, talk about uh, <laughs> paranoid, just like made this entire realm uh, to keep the, the patient in his place. <laughs> mm um so now now i've really gotten on a tangent but i love tangents to me they're association (laughs) associative links see where they lead us Um, but I also think it's very important, I mean, and I like that there's more of a push again as there was like in the with the anti psychiatry movie and m- movement in the 70s and stuff. Now we do have like mad studies and the Hearing Voices Network, and these kind yeah. of alternate ways of looking at things where people, you know, people don't just want to be medicated and turn turn into kind of zombies or end up in like catatonic states they, you know, want to be able to live their lives and so how do we help them do that.
1: Yeah, there's a great article in the um, New York Times right now. Did you see it with? Uh,
0: yeah, exactly.
1: Interviewing Caroline Maisel. I can't remember the last name there, but I've met her once. She's a great speaker in the Hearing Voices movement. But yeah, you saw that. So something's happening. I, I hope, you know, I hope that. Uh, and I do think that's one of the. In mo- mo- some ways, I find speaking in that and I'll say their language or I mean, I'm part of the hearing I'm on the board with the Hearing Voices network here, but so it's not really them or me, but I'm not a person with quite that lived experience. However, um, I find their language, their their terms, a way to 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 communicate to to others, to a more general audience, very similar to what's at stake in, in our analytic work, you know, but it's easier to communicate because it's not always so theoretical sounding or, or maybe how it doesn't have much jargon. Um, but yeah, I'm hoping that there's something taking uh, something swinging back here, where you know, it's the pendulum has really swung heavily into the field of, you know, biological reductionism and, and a certain version of psychiatry, that's um, very unsatisfying.
0: Very. Um, would you say a little bit more about Hearing Voices Network and what you kind of learned for them and how you feel like they kind of work and work with psychoanalysis?
1: Yeah, I think um, that that's, I mean, it's still, I probably came in contact with them through uh, get, being in contact also with the uh, ISPS, which is the International Society for Social and Psychological Approaches to Psychosis, which is not the Hearing Voices Network, but um, a great organization that I'm a part of. And they put on great conferences where, you know, there's not only clinicians giving papers uh, or talks, but also people with lived experience on a panel talking about their experience of the mental health system and recovery, family members, so of people with psychotic experiences and what they face. So it's very, uh, there's a lot of hope there, et cetera, uh, because it's very collaborative in that way. And it's not privileging any one theoretical point of view. It's a it's more about kind of what uh, brings together, I would call just respectful uh, perspectives and approaches that, um, again, try to make space for what is often silenced. But um, that's where I encountered, I think, the Hearing Voices uh, kind of overlap there with them uh, as a as a group, and um, uh, yeah, I mean, I have a whole chapter in the book uh, devoted to the Hearing Voices Network, and um, trying to discuss how sort of things that are fundamental to their work are fundamental to my approach within psychoanalysis. Basically, at the level of ethics, you know, ethical listening, ethical questioning. Um, uh, along those lines um, and so I think uh, so it's we people use the word delusion um, I've learned to call them distressing beliefs uh, basically in my interactions with the hearing voices network and ISPS because um, delusions I, I can use that term and doesn't make me cringe too much but it's it's uh it's much more stigmatizing, I think, and, and evokes something different to to most people. It sounds scary and like no one else, no one who has those kind of thing. But um, what, what, rather than delusions, they use the word frameworks. At least the people that I've interacted with there, mm-hmm. uh, the woman that I inter- person that I interview there, Cindy Marty Hadge, who's just another excellent speaker and person in long time recovery from psychotic experiences and addiction. Um, sort of taught me about this basically through examples and her experiences with her own frameworks. So frameworks is very interesting to me, right? Because um, frames, it's a frame. So framework, just like a delusion is a way of understanding an experience, a traumatic experience, or maybe not just one. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, So that's what they call them. Everyone has their own framework. Mm-hmm. And they'll even say, like she would say, um, you know, The fact that you have a chemical imbalance, that's a framework. Oh, so psychiatry is a framework then, Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, not just something we would call delusional. So it's not just a a replacement for delusional, it's a replacement or or a term used to capture this act of coming up with a way to understand your experience. So there's always the understanding of the experience and then there's the experience. which I think is interesting. It's kind of like fantasy. Fantasy is a way of capturing or or making sense of experience or finding Mm -hmm. one's position. And then there's the experience that it corresponds to, which maybe is unspeakable. Um, But anyway, I learned from them at the group level how frameworks change. So there's an example in the book that talks about how a person came to a group that Cindy was facilitating with someone else uh, with a certain framework about how the messages were coming through the wires uh, and then they were coming through bugs and then they were coming through something else. Uh, So the frameworks were morphing. Why were they morphing? Well, we think they were changing because they were being questioned, Mm. not at the level of reality or of truth, but at the level of context. When did you hear that? How does that work for you? When did you first hear it? What was happening when you first encountered that. So it's about locating it, I think. Um, And so the the theory there is that in relation to the other's kind of ethical and gentle questioning and curiosity, this person had to keep changing them. I I would say they kept reaching the limit of one frame and had to create a new frame, Mm -hmm. similar to the way in which we hear sometimes delusions morphing and adding to themselves. Over the course of a year and a half, by way of the group and the group facilitators, all peers, creating a space for that exploration analysis of the, of, of the context of the, the frameworks, this person, according to Cindy, eventually began to speak of, I think what we, would, we agreed was what underlies it, which had to do with a, a severe history of, of uh, violence and abuse by people in their life. Not someone in a, in a, this is where the delusion subjective history question becomes I think relevant analytically, because um, I mean, I guess someone could argue that a, a story of abuse is a framework, uh, but I would say that when someone begins to speak of their subjective or personal history of trauma, this is no longer the same register as things are coming through the wires or things are entering into me through bugs, right? So point being that a particular version or type of delusional framework became obsolete. Mm -hmm. And the person was then able to speak about uh, the trauma they had encountered at the hand of another who was um, abusive uh, and violating. Um, So this is not unlike maybe a trajectory that happens in analysis Mm -hmm. where you can have, and I think the the book tries to capture that by way of a clinical example, although it's through the dream work instead of a group process or questioning per se. Um, But um, what we're listening for is when, you know, personal subjective traumatic history emerges and parallels, maybe the delusional explanation or, and there and you have the possibility of a, a true questioning. And, um, and so similarly, Cindy tells another story in the book about a voice she heard, she heard it was a crying baby. And so this is in the beginning of her recovery. So she's the person coming into the group in that example, not the facilitator. But again, over time by encountering the same sort of approach, um, she discovered that she hears that voice when she feels, and I'm paraphrasing, unsafe or threatened Mm -hmm. in the world. And so once she discovered that, she realized the voice. So I guess we could speculate that maybe she couldn't be aware of that somehow. The voice was trying to alert her to how she was where she was. Um, But anyway, once she discovered the purpose of the voice, the voice faded. Mm-hmm. So that's, a, that's an example of a voice, uh, not unlike a framework, right? So they, this is the purpose of the voice of the framework um, which can be so disturbing because it's heard, it's seen, uh, it's, it's, uh, it arrives by sort of strange ways, you know, through bugs, um, you know, if the person can be helped guided or whatever to um, begin to deal with what um, that framework or voice was explaining alerting them to warning them about trying to get them to pay attention to uh, then then transformation is possible maybe the voice turns into a less brutal voice maybe it disappears maybe it you know, it changes or it, it, it's a variety of things that from what I can gather hap- can happen, but change can happen. Um, so anyway, those are some, so I, I'm working on sort of, I, I thought it was useful to learn from them how in this very spontaneous way, no one trained them to do that, as far as I can tell, <laughs> this came from their experience and how close it was to, um Some of the best elements of, of an analytic approach say that we could learn from the 388 or, um, from the work that others are doing, Um, and to me it reinforces the, my, sense that, the best ideas come from you know the theory comes from the experience, Mm -hmm. you know the the theory we're just trying to, to to formulate, things in a way, uh, but it comes from, um, what's happening um we're we're learning from them so anyway is that's some thoughts on the hearing voices kind of link there absolutely and I think
0: too you know if uh we could change society's perspective a bit and have people not get so um freaked out when people have crises you know a lot of people have crises you know in their teens or early 20s these kinds of things start happening. But, you know, if the doctors, and the, the kind of adults and the others around them reacted differently and didn't, you know, if the doctors weren't telling you like, oh, this means, you know, you're schizophrenic and it's not treatable and you're going to have to be on medication for the rest of your life and like terrifying, you know, these young people. Um, and instead kind of said, this is something that happens to some people this, uh, usually around this time and kind of made it more an environment that was like more supportive and listening and trying to understand what was going on rather than like, you just have to medicate the symptom away. Um, you know, of course, so many more people would, Yeah, lead lead more um, full lives, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah, you touch on the the kind of people being given a horrible prognosis. Um, Doesn't have to be that way.
0: No, and I have a lot of friends who are like, like shamanic practitioners and magical practitioners and and that kind of thing and and they always tell tell me about you know the that in kind of other cultures and other ways of thinking and other world views you know there's a place for this because it is you know it is Part of human experience and has been for all of time, you know, and instead of treating it as something that, you know, people need to be ostracized or kind of, you know, locked away and not listened to, instead, you know, try to listen to people, understand them. Maybe they have insights that other people don't have and kind of just having a different frame in the community around it, like it gives a place for it rather than being something that needs to be kind of cut off and locked away. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, you have to make a place in the world for it. Um, was there anything that we didn't get to that you wanted to be sure to mention? Um, no, I think we, I mean, we talked about a lot of, you know, what, things that are important, I think. Uh, yeah, it's, it's great.
0: It's a really fantastic book, Brett. And do you have any other events or anything coming up that you want uh, to mention or promote?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, um, so in, uh, I was mentioning ISPS. Uh, so they have every two years, they have an international conference. Um, and so this year, it's in Perugia, Italy. Oh. Um, so that's out there. If, if, if people are interested, in, in, um, and they haven't already been, um, don't already know about it. Uh, these are great conferences. And um, a lot of these ideas are, are discussed there. And I'm looking forward to going. I think it's going to be great. Um, and then there's a, a nat, the ISPS national conference. Uh, another, you know, it'll be similar, but not as uh, as big of a deal. Uh, but in Sacramento, uh, oh, I should say the ISPS one in Italy is uh, end of August through the very beginning of September, and in November is the uh, ISPS in Sacramento national conference. So, um, uh, yeah. So I'm participating in both of those, so I can't wait. Very
0: cool. I think I need to hook up with the ISPS because Ingo Lambrecht is one of my favorite uh, thinkers as well. And I know that he's involved with ISPS and like given talks with them as well. So um, now that I'm not living in the States anymore, I have Uh, to find kind of different networks. I, I was in New York before I moved to Sweden and New York. I didn't realize how spoiled we were. There's so much psychoanalysis going on all the time, right. from all different sorts of orientations, um, and not so much in small town Sweden. So I'm trying to find like different ways to connect and different networks to connect to that are more like over here, um, yeah, and more international. So that's a that's a good one because this is so you're in Sweden, yeah. Oh,
1: okay.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah so it's uh, yeah. I think that would be great. Cause I think this is really important. And I'm very interested in yeah, destigmatization and, you know, making yeah. mental health care, psycho, psychodynamic thinking more accessible to more people. And um yeah, it's really important. It's kind of my
1: yeah, my mission. So, <laughs> so um yeah, Italy wouldn't be that far for you. Or not as exactly. far away, as exactly. Yeah. And
0: Perugia. My mom, my mom's an artist, and I know that she uh, studied in Perugia. And oh, that would yeah. be really fun to visit for mm-hmm. my own so. purposes as well. Uh-huh. But I think she'll actually be visiting me then. You said in the end of August, beginning September. I think yeah. my parents are coming to visit me in Sweden for the first time. And I think that's exactly the time frame where they're well, they'll be visiting, but maybe next time. That would be really cool. I'm going to get involved with ISPS. Yeah, you have inspired
1: yeah.
0: me. Wait, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. yeah, I wanted to ask you one more thing.
1: Sure.
0: No, of course, I forgot because I have no attention span ever since uh, <laughs> I spent all my time on the internet like everyone else. Yeah. It was in and it just popped right back out. <sighs> oh, well. I don't know where it went. <laughs> we'll
1: come back eventually.
0: Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, it's gone. <laughs> oh, I know what I was going to ask you. ha. <laughs> I <Okay>. came back. <laughs> um, What are you working on next? What are you working on now? Uh,
1: Writing-wise? Yeah, in yeah. any way. Um, well, uh, I mean, I... I um, writing wise, I mean, I'm working on a couple, you know, a couple articles. M- more on the question of listening. Uh, I think, um, I mean, these presentations I'm giving are, I'm trying to develop this sort of zone around um, this aspect. I think you could call it transference, or of, you know, that relation between the clinician and the person, where they begin to listen. To their own voices in a different way, um, so and, and how that can be very um, transformative. Of course, that's a basic idea of psychoanalysis. It's in the movie, even right now. He, he the, the the actor playing Lacan says, "Well, now you you're listening to yourself." Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, but when you can achieve, when one achieves that in psychosis, it's that's a big deal, uh, I think, and so. I'm trying to highlight that and sort of just talk about that more, um, in terms of um, maybe you could say different stages in 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 the treatment. Uh, say if there's a rupture in the delusion or a questioning of the of in the in the experience of the person of their delusion. Uh, someone says, "Well, what if I made all this up?" well, how do they, what are the, that's an ethical moment there, a moment for an ethical choice, we could say, and what do they choose? Uh, Do they choose to explore that and and live in that doubt or to um, maybe shore up the delusion or, which is very common, I think. So that's all really, I think, key uh, for clinicians, I think, in these very subtle moments. Um, And I think there are different ways to get there. I mean, I think, People get there through the hearing voices groups. So, there's a, you know, that same ethical choice is made available to them. Um, It can come through dream work, which evokes new material from one's subjective history that then could question or raise questions about one's delusional life or delusional framework. Um, Or, in another case, it seems, I'm not sure where it came from, uh, except that it almost seemed to come from inside from the person when a, thir- a certain voice stopped speaking to them and didn't deliver on a promise. And so that made them wonder what's going on here. So that to me, that was very, I, I, I was surprised. I'd never heard that happen before. Uh, it certainly wasn't part of the, the clinical training, right? Even in the analytic clinical training. So mm-hmm. um, I'm just trying to, to expose and kind of develop these more subtle things around this, the question of listening as an analytic act. Um, and so I think, you know, we call it the talking cure. Well, it's, it's, a, it's also a listening
0: cure. Mm-hmm.
1: There is a power of listening. There's a certain something that happens and I'm curious, you know, it can take years of what appears to be nothing happening. Uh, and so I'm just interested in that
0: some something's happening. Yeah. And I love what you were talking about before too, with this re- reframing it as like a framework, because when you're describing all these things as like, y- you could say that about pretty much everyone, you know, we all like kind of develop these belief systems and uh, yeah. And then they have to kind of be adjusted as more information comes through, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. it's And it also makes it like, when, like you said when you say delusion sometimes that could sound um more stigmatizing and that you usually say like oh someone's delusional that's like a really common kind of thing to say um just in a in a regular everyday sense but it's like making the attribute about like some person rather than like somebody having st- stressing beliefs distressing beliefs or having a particular framework you know um Yeah, so I really like that, how it makes it more feel more kind of like generalized and that, you know, we all have different frameworks and different lenses that we're looking through and different ways of kind of organizing our experiences. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Yeah, I like it. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Brett. It's lovely to have you. And anytime you want to come back um, and talk about what you're doing, feel free to get
1: in touch. I will. And thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking with you.
0: Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion about the book Psychosis and Extreme States An Ethic for Treatment, part of the Palgrave Lacan series. Links are provided in the text accompanying this episode. Visit the main website renderingunconscious.org. And be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at rawsin underscore, that's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore, as well as a TikTok at Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, 23. And now the song, Inventing Collaborations, a collaboration with Carl Abrahamson from the album, Switching Mirrors, available on Highbrow Lowlife's Bandcamp page, highbrowlowlife.bandcamp.com. This album is also available as a two CD box set that includes an original collage that I created. That's a collaboration between Trapart Editions and Highbrow Lowlife, and is available on Chapar's main website under the Art and Editions tab. Visit trapart.net, that's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. Enjoy. Feel their texture and look closely at them. Notice if, if there are any animals within the cave, a bat sleeping beside of the wall. Walk further and further into the than a tiny light. Take another deep breath and put, step, go further and further until it becomes so dark, slowly. In the distance, you see a small light and you, closer, it begins to get bigger and brighter until you make your way to the exit, until you are right there, repositions. Enacting Anne, especially recognized Fool drew in your, and conversations, helpful in, just inspire, entitled panthropology, and apparent, utilized to, reprogram ourselves, inventing collaborations, from the very first cut-ups, be put on par with, production of new, get to the gallery because they say they ship, because it has a lot of pieces, and I get there, and they say, oh, you didn't. Alas, he left a, of the primeval, Kabula, the session, came to a close.